Take your Bibles this evening with me to 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter number 23. Our text deals with uh, one of the mighty men of David, and this is one of the two chapters where we find the list of the mighty men of David given to us. And no doubt that the mightiest men, the mighty men of David that we are most familiar with are the first three that are mentioned in these two lists. They are the ones that are set forward as the most prestigious of all the mighty men of David. Those three men by name are Jashobim, Eleazar, and Shammah. And these, things, these men did incredible things. You can read about them here in 2 Samuel 23 verses 8 to 12. And the way the text is set up is it, it introduces us to these men, their individual accomplishments. Then the text moves into this flashback scene early in the life of David. Uh, we'll, we'll deal with that in just a second. And then it introduces us to two more men, Abishai and Benaiah, before it closes the chapter with the list of the rest of the mighty men. Now the flashback scene is where most of the preaching is done in 2 Samuel 23. I'm sure most of us here, if not all of us, have heard a sermon or two at least on uh, on this story in, in 2 Samuel chapter 23. Uh, in this flashback scene, it is most likely early on in the reign of King David, or perhaps even while he was a fugitive king, while the Philistines occupied Bethlehem. And in a moment of homesickness, David cried out that one would bring him a drink from the well of Bethlehem. There were three mighty men standing nearby when David uttered those words. And those three mighty men decided that they would take that matter into their own hands. And they broke through the garrison of the Philistines and drew a drink of water for King David, brought it back to him. Uh, now, most of the preaching that I have heard about that scene uh, supposes that those first three men, Jashobim, Eleazar, and Shammah, are the three mighty men that were the, were the men that brought that cup of water to drink to King David. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, I, I kind of think that uh, at least Abishai uh, was one of the three that went and drew that cup of water, and perhaps even Benaiah. Now, I'll let you consider that on your own. Uh, you can consider the evidence for that. We're not really dealing with that tonight. But I bring that up to point out that I absolutely love Abishai and Benaiah. Uh, I, I think you could even say, after I've just said that, that I'm a little biased towards Abishai and Benai. I love these two men. In fact, I think these two men are my two favorite lesser-known characters in all of the Bible. I love these two men. And the text that we are going to focus on is dealing with Benaiah, verses 20 to 23. Now, we know a little bit more about Benaiah than what we find here in 2 Samuel 23 and even the sister passage for this. We find Benaiah later on in 1 Kings 1 and 2. Benaiah plays a critical role in the establishment of Solomon to the throne. And really, to put it one way, Benaiah was the king's assassin. He was the man that killed the political enemies of Solomon. A wonderful guy, a stand-up guy. And uh, one of my favorite guys in all of the scripture. Now, we won't have time tonight to deal with that passage of scripture, that story. Maybe we'll come back to that at a later date and deal with, because I think it's fascinating. In fact, I think what he did at a later date in 1 Kings 1 and 2 is even greater than what, uh, what we find here in 2 Samuel 23. 
but uh, reasonable time will not permit us to get there tonight, maybe, maybe another time. But in this passage, what we find is Benaiah as a type of the victorious Christian. And I think we can glean much spiritual truth from the example that Benaiah gives us here in this passage. We see in verse number 20, down to verse 23, And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabziel, had done many, who, who had done many acts. He slew two lion-like men of Moab. He went down also and slew a lion in the midst of a pit in time of snow. And he slew an Egyptian, a goodly man. And the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but he went down to him with the staff and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and had the name among three mighty men. He was more honorable than the thirty, but he attained not to the first three, and David set him over his guard. I think that as Christians we all strive to defeat the enemies in our lives. In fact, if we want to serve our king well, we must defeat the enemies in our, own, in, in our lives. And Benaiah in this text is a remarkable example, a clear example of what a victorious Christian looks like. In this short sketch of his life, there are three unique victories that Benaiah secures, that the author gives to us. First, we see in verse number 20 that Benaiah killed two lion-like men of Moab. Then again in verse 20, the end of the verse, we find that Benaiah killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. And then finally in verse 21, we find that Benaiah killed an Egyptian man. And the, began, the battle began with Benaiah having a staff in his hand, the Egyptian having a spear in his hand. And at the end of the battle, Benaiah had the spear and the Egyptian was dead. And there's something about all three of these battles that intrigues me and probably intrigues you as well. Uh, each of these three battles is something that I really would have liked to seen with my own eyes. They are unique. They're unusual short stories. And in each of these stories, as we'll consider in a minute, they, I think we can glean spiritual edification for our own benefit from them. But before we get to the primary points of the message tonight, I just want to make a few observations from the life, from the story of Benaiah that we get here, just to kind of fill in our understanding as we move forward. First of all, we can assume that because these accomplishments are listed here, that these are justifiable acts of force. Uh, I think that, uh, well, first of all, these encounters are unique from the other accomplishments that are listed for us of the other mighty men in the chapter, in that all of those other accomplishments that are listed are, uh, are, are multiples, are hundreds of men that were killed. Jashobim, 800 men. Abishai, 300 men. It's very easy in our minds to put those accomplishments in the context of a military battle. I don't think a guy wakes up one day and decides, I want to kill 800 people today. But he does so in battle. He does so when backed into a corner. All of those other accomplishments are easy to put into a military uh, context. But, but Benaiah's accomplishments are on a much smaller scale. He killed two men, he killed a lion, he killed another, another man. But it is safe to assume that because Benaiah is included in the list of mighty men, and because these accomplishments are set forward as a reason why Benaiah is included in this list of mighty men, that these were justified acts. These were not acts of cold-blooded murder, but Benaiah did something to perhaps defend uh, the oppressed children of God. He, he did something, he was provoked or justifiably uh, justified in his use of force. 
The second thing that I would point out about these three stories is that in each case, Benaiah had a severe disadvantage. In the first case, there were two men that Benaiah took on, and it's hard enough to fight one guy, uh, much less two. If you've ever been in a situation like that, I, I have. I was, um, I was an unruly teenager, so oftentimes found myself in a situation where there were a couple, or at least a couple older people that wanted to give me a wedgie or something of that sort. So I found myself on several ends, uh, short ends of the straw. And it is much harder to fight two guys than it is to fight one guy. Much, much more harder when those two men can be described as lion-like. I don't think anybody in here uh, has faced this situation before. We can, only, we can only imagine the difficulty of such a situation. And then Benaiah went into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Now, I'm no expert. I've never tried to kill a lion. But I'm just going to assume that it's pretty difficult to kill a lion, especially when you take out uh, modern, modern weapons in order to kill that lion. And then the context adds a little bit more difficulty to the scene. Not only did he kill a lion in ancient days, but he did so in a pit during a time of snow. I mean, this is, is, when you're facing a lion, again, never done this before, but I'm going to assume that you want to have some pretty sure footing. This is not a place where you're going to want to slip up. This is going to be a situation where if you're put into a, put into a position where you've got to run, you can turn very, very quickly and escape. And snow is not, not a place for sure foundation. It's a place where one slips easily, and much more so, a snowy pit. This is not a context in which one should be trying to kill a lion. So Benaiah is disadvantaged against the two lion-like men of Moab, but he's also disadvantaged against the lion itself as well. And then finally, we have this goodly Egyptian man in verse number 21. And this Egyptian started with an actual weapon. He started with a spear. Benaiah did not start with a weapon, or at least a weapon that was designed to be a weapon, it was a staff. Uh, so he's at a disadvantage. Oh, and by the way, this Egyptian is seven, seven foot five inches tall. So this Egyptian literally looks down on Shaquille O'Neal. So in all of these cases, Benaiah is outnumbered, he is outmatched, uh, he is out-equipped. But you know what we find about Benaiah? That these disadvantages did not deter him from taking on the battle. Right, right. Benaiah was not one for calculating the risk, the reward of the situation. Benaiah never saw a challenge that he didn't think that he could overcome. He saw an opportunity and regardless of the obstacles that, 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 that faced him, he took on the opportunity, seized the opportunity. Perhaps the Moabite men were oppressing some of God's people. Benaiah didn't care that there were two of them. He saw an opportunity uh, and he seized the opportunity. Perhaps the lion was threatening some of the neighboring children. Benaiah was not going to sit by in fear while the lion, lion uh, 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 toured the streets. He was going to take matters into his own hand. And Benaiah saw that Egyptian man with the spear in his hand, and he saw a challenge that he knew he could take on by the power of God. And would to God that we as Christians had that same kind of courage in dealing with the enemies that we face. We have enough calculating Christians. We need more courageous Christians. 
We need to be less full of excuses and more full, more full of courage. Not worry about the obstacles that face us. Not worry about the number of the enemies that face us. Not think about the difficulty that awaits us. But stand and take on the challenge that the Lord has laid before us. We find that the default response of most people in difficult situations is to make excuses. In Proverbs 26, 13, we read, The slothful man saith, There is a lion in the way. There is a lion in the streets. And there's, we could raise questions as to whether or not there was an actual lion in the streets that day. We don't necessarily trust the word of a man trying to make excuses. But even if there was a lion in the streets, somebody needs to get the lion out of the streets. Somebody needs to get him out of there. That's no excuse. Somebody has to take action. 1 Samuel chapter 17, when Goliath was challenging the mightiest of the army of Israel, of Israel to a one-on-one -on -one fight, he did so for 40 days. He went out there every day for 40 days challenging anyone to come and take him in a one-on-one -on -one battle. And I'm sure in those 40 days there were a lot of excuses being made amongst the mightiest of the men in Israel's armies. But then one day little David showed up and he heard the defiance of Goliath and even those around him tried to formulate excuses for him. Saul told him, you're but a youth. You shouldn't go out there. You're a child. You can't go out there. And David was not one for making excuses. He was not one for buying into excuses. He saw the challenge. He recognized the disadvantage. But he also recognized that he had a Lord that did not care about his disadvantage. And that could overcome any disadvantage that David faced. But this is not the norm. That courage is not the norm, and it is certainly not the norm of today. But those of us that hold the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us, this should be the norm. We should have the courage to know that no matter what we face in this life, we have the power of God to overcome what we face in this life. And with that in mind, I want us to consider the three enemies that Benaiah faced. And I want us to see some spiritual truth from them. First of all, I want you to notice this first enemy in verse number 20, the middle of the verse. He slew two lion-like men of Moab. The first enemy that Benaiah faced were two, two lion-like men of Moab. Now, the description, talked about this already just a little bit, but the description of these two men is not a description that we hear used often. Lion-like. It's not really a description we use a lot about a lot of people. In fact, as I look around the room tonight, I don't think there's anybody in here that I would describe as lion-like. The only person that comes to my, my mind is on occasion my youngest daughter. I would describe her occasionally as lion-like. But the idea is ferocious, predatory, confident, fierce. And not only is there one lion-like man, but there are two lion-like men. I can't imagine that in all the land of Moab there are a whole lot, of more, whole lot more of these types of men around. In fact, I kind of think Benaiah killed both of the only lion-like men of, of Moab. But what I want us to focus on tonight is not so much the lion-like men of Moab, but the fact that these men were from Moab. The Moabites, along with the Ammonites, traced their history, their lineage, all the way back to Lot. Genesis chapter 19, two angels come to Lot or came to Lot in Sodom. And they, these two angels told Lot that he needed to immediately get out of Sodom uh, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Lot was reluctant in fleeing Sodom. In fact, 
He was quite literally drug out of the city. Uh, him and his family were drug out of the city by the angels. But he got out of the city, began to get away from the city. He was instructed as, his, as he escaped the city to not turn around and look back at the city. And as the city was being destroyed by the Lord by fire and brimstone, Lot's wife turned around and looked at the city and she instantly became a pillar of salt. So as Lot and his two daughters uh, escaped, they escaped to a nearby mountain, to some caves. They lived there for a little while. And the situation seemed so dire to his daughters that his, his daughters decided to commit incest with their father. They got him drunk and they committed incest with him. And they bore two sons. The first son that was born was, was, was the son named Moab. And the second was named Benami. Moab obviously was the father of the Moabites. Benami was the father of the Ammonites. And in the Moabites and the Ammonites, what we have are, are a people or a people, peoples who were very closely related to God's people. And yet all throughout the Old Testament, we find that these two groups of people were almost always at odds with God's people. Closely related, but a fierce enemy. Closely related, but a fierce enemy. Does that sound familiar to you? Because it sure sounds familiar to me. That we all here have a close relative who is also a fierce enemy. And no, I'm not talking about your mother-in-law. You have a closer relative that is even more fierce enemy than even the worst mother-in-law. And that is your flesh. That's what we're talking about. That's who the Moabites are a type of in the Old Testament. They're a type of the flesh, the, the old man that we, all, that we all have. And throughout the Old Testament, we find that the, the Moabites are a clear type of this. Numbers chapter 22, Balak, who is king of the Moabites, he asks Balaam the prophet to curse the children of Israel. Balaam knows that this is not a good idea. In fact, if he attempts to curse the children of Israel, that that will actually be counterintuitive, that it will result, result in more blessings to the children of Israel, not their cursing. But Balaam gives Balak an idea. He tells Balak to entice the young men of Israel to commit fornication with the young women of the Moabites, to intermarry with the young women of the Moabites. And in so doing, the Israelites got a little bit more comfortable with the Moabites and got a little more comfortable with their false gods and their idols and began to introduce their idols into the congregation of Israel. And, and in so doing, what Balaam realized was that I cannot by external force, get God to curse His own people. But what I can do is get them to take themselves out of the blessing of God. And you know what I find? I find that my greatest enemy is myself. I do not need the devil to come personally entice me to sin. I do not really need the allure of the world to tempt me in order to get me to sin. But in fact, the greatest cause of sin, the greatest cause of sin in my own heart is my own flesh. The flesh's temptation is oftentimes sufficient enough apart from the influence of the devil and apart from the influence of the world to get me to stumble. And so oftentimes what we do is we treat the flesh as a crucial part, an integral part of who we are. We give it place. We give it place in our hearts. Now maybe we try to suppress it a little bit. Maybe we try to dignify it a little bit. Maybe we try to justify it a little bit. But we don't properly crucify the flesh like we are commanded to in the New Testament. 
And the nation of Israel very oftentimes did that. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 2, we find that the Israelites have the Moabites under their thumb for a period of time. And the Israelites have the Moabites paying tribute to them in 2 Kings chapter 2. But after King Ahab died, the Moabites decided that they would rebel and revolt against the children of Israel. And you know, I find that, that, that if I tried to justify or dignify or even suppress a little bit the flesh and not try to mortify the deeds of the flesh, not try to kill the flesh, you, you know, we're playing with fire when we do that. You cannot control the flesh. You cannot make the flesh your servant. Either you serve the flesh or you kill the flesh. And there is no alternative to those two options. You know what we ought to do with the flesh? We ought to do what Ehud did. Ehud in Judges chapter 3, under the oppression of the Moabites for 18 years under King Eglon, Eglon, Ehud decided that he was going to trick his way into the summer palace of King Eglon, and he did so. He was able to get one-on-one -on -one exclusive company with King Eglon to, Eglon to present him a, a gift from Israel. And when he got up real close, he grabbed the dagger that he had uh, that he had concealed on his right thigh, and he thrust it into the big belly of King Eglon. That is exactly what you and I ought to do with the flesh. Yeah. We shouldn't pamper the flesh. We shouldn't justify the flesh. We shouldn't dignify the flesh. But we should kill the flesh. Right. We should crucify the flesh. We should mortify the flesh. Right. And this is exactly what we see Benaiah doing. Benaiah killed these two lion-like men of Moab. And Benaiah stands here as an example to you and I that we can kill the flesh. You may think that you can't overcome the flesh, that the impulses of your sinful flesh are too strong to overcome, but the testimony of Benaiah is that by the power of the Lord, you can overcome the temptations of the flesh. I want you to see the second enemy, again found at the end of verse number 20. He slew two lion-like men of Moab. He went down also and slew a lion in the midst of a pit in time of snow. I love the vivid picture that is given to us here of, of Benaiah going down into a pit and killing this lion. And there's just something about this description that awakens the imagination. I can almost see it in my mind's eye of Benaiah going down, tracking the tracks of the lion and encountering the lion in that pit and, and, and killing it. And notice the words here, verse number 20, he went down also and slew a lion. It indicates to me that there was a bit of initiative on the part of Moab. He didn't go into the pit for some other reason. He went into the pit because the lion was there. And he went into that pit specifically to kill the lion on that day. Now very oftentimes in the Old Testament, a lion is a type of the judgment of God upon the children of Israel. In Leviticus chapter 26, uh, the Lord told them that if they disobeyed His commandments, that He would send wild beasts into their lands to kill their beasts, to kill their cat cattle, and to devour their children. But the timing of this lion does not indicate the judgment of God upon Israel. In fact, the Lord is not judging Israel. In fact, at this time, the anointed one, King David, has ascended to the throne in Israel. They're serving the one true God. They are reclaiming the land, the land that God had given them. Now, I know that uh, you know what this lion is a type of. This lion is very obviously a type of the devil that we, that we face. 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, 
walketh about, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. The devil is real, he is terrifying, and he is your enemy. He is my enemy today. He wants to destroy you. He wants to deter your walk from God. He wants you to have a broken marriage. He doesn't want your children to serve God. He wants to ruin any kind of influence that you can have for the Lord. You want to see what the, what the devil can do? Look at Job. In Job chapter 1, the Lord presents a challenge of sorts to Job. He says, have you considered my servant Job? And the devil essentially responds to the Lord, well, if you give me a chance at Job, I'll have him cursing your name in no time. And in one day, Job received a report that he had lost his sheep, he had lost his servants, and he had lost all of his children. Shortly later, Job develops a severe skin rash, got terrible sores all over his body. And by the time it is over, Job's wife is telling him, you should just curse God and get it over with. Just curse God and die. The devil is very good at destroying lives. He is very good at damaging people. And just like the lion, the devil is cunning, he is fierce, he is ferocious, and he is terrifying. But again, I would remind you of the verse that I just read in 1 Peter chapter 5, specifically the commands that are given to us in, 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 in knowledge of the fact that the devil is in this world and he is seeking to destroy those. And this is the command, to be sober, to be vigilant. But notice what the command is not. The command is not to be fearful. Don't fear Satan, but be sober, be alert, be awake. Don't fear the devil. And Beniah went into that pit that day and he got the victory over that ferocious beast. He killed the lion on that day. Now I have a question. What got into Beniah on that day? Why did he go into the pit that day to kill that lion? Can we not wait till the circumstances are a little better? Can we not wait until the lion comes out of the pit. But Benaiah went in that day with confidence that he was going to kill that wild beast. And I, I, I wonder, what gave Benaiah the confidence to go into the pit that day to kill that lion? Now, a bit of conjecture here, but, but here's what I think. I, I think Benaiah thought back to the time that David killed a lion. You remember in 1 Samuel 17, David told Saul in trying to persuade him to let David go kill Goliath. He told him, you know, one day a bear came and got one of my lambs or one of my father's lambs that I watched and I killed the bear. Another time a lion came, snatched, snatched a lamb in his mouth and I grabbed the lion by the beard and slew, slew the lion. And I think Benaiah realized that if his king could conquer this enemy, conquer a lion, then so could Benaiah as well. Now, that's conjecture, and you may disagree with me on that interpretation, but now taking that out of conjecture, I know this, that my king did conquer the lion. In Psalms chapter 22, we have one of the most vivid prophecies of the cruc crucifixion given to us. Uh, the psalmist opens, my, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Obviously drawing us to the cross where Christ said those exact words. And in Psalms chapter 22, we see the father turning his back from the Son. And the reason that He did that was because the Son bore our sin in His own body. That's why He did that. The Father could not look upon the sin that His Son bore upon the cross, so He turned His back, turned his back from His Son. But in Psalms chapter 22, the psalmist 
seems to see that there is something else going on in addition to the fact that Christ bore our sins. Because in verse 22, 21 of Psalms 22, the psalmist says this, speaking prophetically of Christ, Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. The beginning of the chapter, he is not hurt. But here in verse 21 of Psalm 22, he is hurt, and he is saved from the mouth of the lion. And it reminds me that at the end of the crucifixion, before Christ died, he cried with a loud voice, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. What I think Christ was doing that day was as all of the forces of hell were watching to see if they had conquered the Lamb of God, he cried with a loud voice, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, just to let them know that I have won, that I have conquered the devil and I have conquered uh, conquered his foes. And by the way, Hebrews 2 seems to back this up because in Hebrews 2 we read, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. See, our king, the Lamb of God, has already conquered the devil. And the victory of our king is our victory as well. We share in his victory. Now don't get me wrong. Okay, I don't want you to leave here and start mocking the devil. Please don't do that. I think that's foolish to do. The devil has yet to be locked into the bottomless pit. He is still walking about this earth seeking whom he may devour. He still, still wields a lot of power in this world. But friends, God has not given us the spirit of fear. If the devil were to direct all his attention at you, if he were to turn all his demonic forces against you, if he were to point all of his weapons at you, he could not touch your soul because of what Christ has already done. Christ has already conquered this enemy. He is a defeated foe. So don't fear him. Don't fear the devil. Live for Christ. Fight for him. Build for him and rely on his strength to overcome the devil. The final enemy that we see here is found in verse number 21. This is the goodly Egyptian. He slew, he slew an Egyptian, a goodly man, and the Egyptian had a spear in his hand. But he went down to him with the staff and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear. Here is an Egyptian that is seven and a half foot tall. And the Egyptian has a spear. Now, military historians have, have told or I've read that, that the spear that this giant possessed that day was most likely not one of these super long spears that we imagine as, as used as kind of a javelin to throw at someone. But in fact, the spear here uh, was a much shorter spear that was used for close combat. So this is, he's truly at an advantage. He has a weapon that is, that is built for these specific kind of situations. And Benaiah has a staff. He does not have a spear. He has a staff. And the staff is a shepherding instrument. It is certainly not designed to kill another human being with. So I don't get the sense that in this passage, Benaiah has some kind of advantage over the Egyptian. This Egyptian is not some big clumsy Egyptian, but he is a man of war. He is prepared for this kind of battle. And Benaiah, just like in the previous situations, overcomes the odds and defeats the Egyptians. And I, I think also that if there was one, two, or 200 of these Egyptians here that day, that Benaiah would have still overcome them. 
Because Benaiah didn't do this in his own strength, but he did this in the power of the Lord. And when you have the power of the Lord, it really does not matter the number that is against you. The power of the Lord is greater. And of course, I, I think you're with me on this, that Egypt, this goodly Egyptian, Egypt is a type of the world. Egypt was a superpower. They were admired for their architecture and their academic greatness. Egypt shows the impressiveness of the world, the allure of the world's authority and power and prestige and pride. But under the thin layer of superficial impressiveness is nothing but vanity. It's emptiness. And somehow we find in the Old Testament the, na the nation of Israel is perpetually drawn to Egypt. Even right after their delivery from Egypt out of Egyptian slavery, they find themselves in a pickle and they want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to the security of that nation of Egypt. Uh, when the law was given, they were instructed not to go to Egypt to multiply horses unto themselves. Solomon got himself into trouble by marrying a woman from Egypt. And sometimes uh, what we find in Scripture is that, that Israel was just sucked in again and again by the allure of Egypt. And don't we find that with ourselves sometimes? No matter how long you've been a Christian, we have to combat the allure of the world in our own hearts. There's something about it that has this strange allure to us. It, it almost feels like we're missing out on something when we are not a part of the world. But I want you to listen to how Moses thought about this choice between Christ and the world. In Hebrews 11, by faith, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Moses decided that it, would be, that it was better to suffer with the people of God than it was to enjoy the pleasure of Egypt. And there may be a yearning in your heart tonight to enjoy the world's pleasure. But you need to know that down that road is nothing but disaster, waste, and heartache. It would be better to suffer with Christ than it would be to be esteemed as a great person by this world. It would be better to, be, uh, to suffer with Christ than it would be to have all the riches of this world. So here are the three enemies that we as Christians face, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you may be here and you're struggling with one of these enemies in particular. And I'm here to tell you that you're not alone. We all struggle with these enemies on a daily basis. It's in fact what makes the Christian life difficult is these three enemies. But Benaiah stands as an example to you and I that we can overcome the enemies that we face. Struggling with the flesh? Benaiah killed two lion-like men of Moab. You can conquer the flesh. Struggling with the devil, Benaiah killed the lion on a snowy day in a pit. You can, you can, you can win the victory over the devil. Struggling with the allure of the world, Benaiah killed the Egyptian with his own spear. You can, you can get victory over the world. All this was done, by the way, in the power of the Lord. And if you wish to get victory over these three enemies, it's going to be by the same strength that got Benaiah the victory in, in his day. And that is by the power of the Lord. Reminds you of what we find in Romans chapter 8. If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? We can get victory over our enemies.